0: This is Making It Up, a weekly cultured news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is like catch-up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself.
1: We pick our topics from the Making briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times.
0: Also, if you like this podcast, the best thing you can do for it is share your favorite episode with a friend. We really appreciate it.
1: So before we kick things off, we're starting a new procedure? Is that the right way of putting it?
0: I don't know. That sounds so clinical.
1: We're, we're limiting ourselves.
0: That sounds really yeah. clinical. Let's just say we have come up with a new method in which we're going to attempt to record
1: making it up. Nothing actually changes. It's just that we're much more aware of the time. So we're trying to get the whole recording in in under, what, 50 minutes?
0: I suspect that people do not care
1: how we do yeah, this. Yeah, I don't know. But don't you think that Once podcasts hit a certain length, it immediately enters this weird place of, "Mm, maybe I won't start it.
0: I don't think this conversation is worth getting
1: into. Okay. Anyways. Go introduce your subject. Oh yeah. We're getting right into it. New format too. Getting straight into the subject and we'll talk about the fun stuff afterwards. All right. I actually have a pretty heavy subject.
0: Yeah. It's a heavy hitter. I'm glad we're starting with
1: that. So- The subject is Financial Times Breaks the News on a Philip Morris and Vice partnership. So I guess it's, like in in many ways, this is the way this piece of news sort of disseminated across the internet. But this relationship between Philip Morris, who, if you're unfamiliar with, is the parent company of some of the most famous and popular cigarette brands in the world. This Vice partnership dates back about three years or so. So the underlying piece of news was that there was a five million pound deal between Vice and Philip Morris International, who I'll refer to as PMI.
0: I think it is worth saying a little bit more about Philip Morris International.
1: Yes, yeah. Like, I was going to kind of go into it afterwards.
0: Okay, good. Because I think yeah. that provides a lot of the context. And to be straight with you, I didn't realize that this company was called PMI.
1: Yes. So that five million pound deal works out to be about 6.58 million US definitely not an insignificant amount of money for a media partnership. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Philip Morris is behind some really big brands, brands like Marlboro and Benson and & Hedges, as well as other, I guess, more regional brands, brands that might be a little bit smaller, a little bit more well-known for their positioning within like a country-specific market. But they also have a pretty active stake in the e-cig world. They made an investment of $12.8 billion into Juul, yeah. as well as being the creators of iCos. I think Juul is something a lot of people are familiar with. It's like an e-cig that a it lot of kids are into. It looks like a
0: USB stick. Yes. For people yeah, who it's might funny. not be it's, familiar yeah, with Yeah, it's, it. like,
1: it's pretty well designed. Like It's kind of sleek, kind of sexy looking. Yeah. And then iCos is more in the same vein of a traditional cigarette where you can actually see the cigarette Uh, protruding from the device. And that device, I'm not super familiar with Juul's technology. I know it's like a salt they use. But in terms of Icos, what they do is, so you basically take what looks like a cigarette, and it's essentially a cigarette, and you put it into the device. And what it does is it carefully manages the heat in which the cigarette burns. So instead of being 600 degrees plus, which is where a lot of the harmful toxins and whatnot are generated, I mean, this is according to their marketing, whether it's entirely true, I think that's up for debate, but it maintains a temperature around 350 degrees Celsius, which ensures a cleaner taste, it's quote unquote, less harmful for you. I think that's a better way of putting it rather than it's healthier for you.
0: Yeah, Um, I actually want to just give like a tiny bit more on Philip Morris International because like I, when I was first introduced to this article, it didn't hit me like what a big deal it was because of not understanding the size of this company. So it was founded in 1847. It's 170 years old. It's been in this tobacco business like forever. It is a Fortune 500 company and the revenue they posted last year was $78 billion. So I just want to like give that for some context. So this is not like some small time
1: cigarette company. One of the pieces that spun off, actually it's it's probably not doing it justice to say it spun off of the whole news around this PMI Vice deal, but it's a site called Not Vice, yeah. and it's had a long-standing issue with Vice's whole business, uh, pertaining to a lack of fact-checking in their documentary process, to to transparency issues around ads and the content that Vice creates. So I have to kind of preface this as well, and I think actually, you know, I, I had to share a passage from uh, the article before we went on air because I was a little bit confused. But you, the, one of the immediate things you you pointed out was the, the hyperbole around some of the, the wording used by, by not vice. But basically what I want to say is like, I'm not necessarily questioning the validity of some of the, the, the points put out by not vice, but I just think that there's a, a very strong emotional layer that's put over, put over top of yeah. what's written. So I'm, kind of just like slightly weary of it because there does seem to be, I mean, the site's name is not Vice, right? It's like, there's a bit of vendetta out against Vice.
0: We're not saying that there are factual inaccuracies because it does seem like Daniel Vashar, the author, has done a lot of the legwork to do this research, but it is super clear. And I, like he would say it himself, evidently, like he is out to get Vice, (laughs) essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it detracts from the overall conversation we're going to have because For us, it's really about sort of what this means. The whole article leads with a back-channel convo with Kelly, who's part of this whole Vice PMI project. And she, in confidentiality, consults with Daniel Vachard, as Charisse mentioned, the author behind this piece. And they go into detail around how this partnership was shaping up. This whole project, as I mentioned, dates back about three years. And it started with a series of white-label Ads by Vice, and for those unfamiliar with white label, it just means that PMI brings in Vice to do these videos, and it's in no way associated with Vice.
0: It's not just something Vice does; it's a
1: yes practice. I don't know what to call it. It's a common thing. Now you need some creative work done, and you bring someone in. It'd be like yeah. if I don't know Nike hired Macon to do a photo shoot for them. But it was never going to be advertised exactly. as a Macon. It has only just
0: occurred to me that it must be called White Label because the label is blank.
1: Yeah. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> keep going. You're a smart one, Charisse. Yep, I know, man. Basically, this whole relationship was going to culminate in a 2019 series of Vice-branded docs. So this is where the difference occurs. is that
0: Documentaries.
1: Yeah, documentaries. One thing that Vice was under the assumption, and this is hard for me to be like, oh, it was this or that. It was more that I think the the internal dialogue or maybe what you tell yourself is that you're going to do good with bad money, which is often the case with tobacco money. It's yeah. like, hey, I'm going to take this for good. Well, it, but, it doesn't
0: have to just be tobacco money. It could be
1: any, Yeah, it could be a lot of things. Yeah, it could be a lot of things. Yeah. So in regards to that, This is sort of the overarching editorial relationship between Vice and PMI. And four things come up. PMI has an active stake in selecting the story pitches. They do not allow journalists to appear because naturally journalists ask difficult, challenging questions trying (laughs) to get to the heart of it. They blacklist doctors, specialists, and experts who are critical to PMI. Same thing. I mean, you're trying to root out anything with any sort of shred of objectivity around it and also pre-approving any questions for PMI CEO Andre Kalantopoulos.
0: And basically and then, it's like eliminating anything that is unexpected. So everything within the doc is scripted.
1: This whole relationship, and I think one of the things why this, it didn't sort of just run its course naturally was as of the last six to nine months, I think that Vice has undergone uh, some challenges and they range from, you know, getting a new CEO, which not necessarily a negative thing, but just like you know, shake up on the managerial level, some layoffs. But I mean, a lot some of media scandals. companies are going through layoffs, as well as a scandal where executive chairman Shane Smith, who's one of the co-founders, was hanging out with the controversial Saudi prince Mohammed <laughs> bin Salman.
0: I'm, I'm laughing and because th- I think "controversial" is too light of a you, word. You can pick the
1: word then, dude, yeah, man. I mean,
0: how about (laughs) murder?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, No, no, seriously. Sorry. It's not a laughing matter. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, otherwise known as MBS is the mastermind behind the death of Khashoggi. So that's, yeah, that's the context. Not a guy you should be hanging out with.
1: Amidst all of this, there is another sort of thing that's sort of popping up and it was an incoming project by Vice called Change Incorporated. So it was an editorial platform which aimed to highlight some of the world's biggest challenges and solve them with some of sort of the the most innovative and thought-provoking leaders in this world. The video that was circulating internally was kind of highlighting the fact that we all can agree that we disagree. Like a lot of topics that are swirling around and some of the biggest issues, those are things that, we all have trouble sort of agreeing upon, but it's like tapping all the sort of big players in the world to find a solution around that. I think that this is where another sort of chain broke off in sense of like what, in the sense that there was another conversation happening because there was a Twitter campaign, and I know this is a little bit difficult for people maybe to follow along because there's all these like so, sort of simultaneous angles happening, but. There's a Twitter feed where Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids called out PMI for their vice partnership, that exact Financial Times discussion. And then within that thread, Dr. Myra Gilchrist, a VP at PMI, denied that the editorial platform was to sell cigarettes and that it was supporting an independent endeavor. So I think that's where a lot of things are like, well, you know what? She, she's under the pretense, hey, you know what, let it come to life and then you can make your assessment on if PMI is really influencing this or not. There's no real conclusion here so much as that this is sort of, this is in part the state of affairs in terms of whether it's media. It's also bringing into question ethics. It also is, from a media standpoint, who's gonna pay your bills and how do you pay them? I, I don't know where to start with that because I think it's, it's quite heavy. Hmm. The, Maybe one thing we can do is like, this is interesting because as we ran through what things we wanted to talk about this week, of all the options, why did you choose this one? Why was this one yeah. interesting to you? Yeah.
0: It's a lot, right? Because we're talking about tobacco, which is a loaded subject in itself, right? But I also picked it because I think when we talk about that media question, Tobacco is actually one of the more clear cut examples of something that maybe you shouldn't do. That it, It's less gray. For example, I, I remember distinctly when I was a undergraduate and we were talking about advertising in my advertising class, that tobacco was like the example of like, would you take tobacco money? And like, that's a very clear way to like see your moral stance. It, it's more clear than like, let's say, if you were asked... Do you want to sell, what's something slightly controversial? I don't
1: know. Something that's multi-level marketing. Sure. That.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, would you do advertising for Avon, for example? That's a multi-level marketer, right? Anyway, you yep. you. Know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, which is less clear because it's like, oh, well, people's lives aren't at stake. It's still not good, definitely. Side note here that you should listen to The Dream. Did you hear about it?
1: No, I didn't.
0: Uh, The Dream is a really great podcast series about multi-level marketing schemes. Anyway, Ah. so I think I picked it because um, when we talk about smoking and media, that it it should hopefully crystallize that do good with bad money issue. Like, I I feel like you can take a firmer stance on it.
1: Mm -hmm. So, like, one thing that I, I found interesting was someone... Tweet about this and I know for a fact they partner with say McDonald's right like what is is it a gradient or is it a binary thing like fast food in itself isn't necessarily healthy for you either right and I think it's also engineered in a way where it's not in the sense that nicotine is addictive but it does have a similar sort of approach where they're trying to maximize all these things that make something extremely tasty like in an unnatural manner.
0: I mean, okay, this is my personal stance. And I, I guess when I picked this subject, I knew that this was gonna come up, but there is no way that tobacco is good. That doesn't mean I don't like smokers, okay? I'm not like t- saying that smokers are going to help. It's just that they themselves would admit, like when you smoke, that causes cancer. Like there's just yeah. no study that's going to disprove that. No matter how much a cigarette
1: company tries. But if like a food is proven to cause diabetes, what's the difference there?
0: A food that's is not inherently going to cause diabetes.
1: Mm. Uh, this is kind of a slippery slope because I think that if you really, look at it I mean, any amount of tobacco is bad. Nicotine in itself, I don't think is bad for you. I think it's the smoking that's bad for you. Eugene, I honestly think that this is the case. I think it's the smoking that's bad for you. Are you doing some research as well?
0: Okay, Wikipedia. Okay, so nicotine is an element. Does does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right. So nicotine is an element. You can find trace amounts of nicotine in naturally occurring food items such as potatoes, tomatoes, and eggplant, but it's trace. Beyond that, Mm -hmm. it it's bad. It's a drug that is highly addictive. You know, I don't, I don't know why I'm explaining nicotine. I stand by my stance. What? Okay, okay. I see what you're saying here. Okay, so the Wikipedia page says, the general medical position is that nicotine itself poses few health risks except among certain vulnerable groups such as youth. The International Agency for Research on Cancer indicates that nicotine does not cause cancer.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at is that if you can, it as a as the element I mean, itself- I mean, really it's okay, I we're really splitting hairs. Okay, fine.
0: I'll walk it back. I'll just say like smoking cigarettes is bad. Uh, yeah. How, how's that? How is that a, as a statement? Like you the just could not it. convince me that smoking yep. a cigarette is not bad for your health.
1: But I guess this is where the thing becomes a little bit more cloudy. It's like, what if you chewed nicotine gum and you kind of get the same effects? So, anyways, I think that's neither here nor there. It's funny because when you when you brought this up, we had. And it's very vivid in my mind because I've used this explanation a few times and it's never been a decision we've had to make. But I remember a few making it ups ago, what's seen probably like 40 episodes, I bet. We basically talked about the same thing. It's like, what happens if you're left with the choice of either taking PMI or tobacco money in hopes of staying around? And by staying around, you're able to do I don't remember Over this the course conversation.
0: Of a long of time, <laughs> no, I don't at all.
1: Good, is it worth it? Really? Oh wait. Oh yeah. Maybe probably. it wasn't on making it up. Maybe it was probably, just in the subway. Probably.
0: Um, I I must have said no. I I can't imagine myself in a position where I would be like, yeah, I'll take that yeah,
1: money. Yeah, I think it was in the subway. I actually remember your answer quite vividly because what you said was, generally speaking, in like a small sort of setup like making, there's a very strong sense of morals and ethics.
0: I remember saying this now. I I meant internally. I meant like, how would you convince yourself to do this?
1: People will not be happy if those morals or ethics are compromised. Yeah, because that's one thing, right? It's you at the top could be okay with doing it, but then somehow you need to really... Engage in a lot of propaganda to get your rest of the. I think also, I mean, we talked about this
0: privately, not knowing the success situation of companies, like not being able to tell for sure from an outsider perspective how well a company is doing. So part of me wants to say, I don't think Vice needs this money. As in, I don't think Vice is in that sort of. Either we, don't exist or we take this money from PMI and keep existing. But I could be wrong, I could be wrong. I don't know, right? Maybe they are in like seriously dire straits and so therefore they have to take this PMI money. But but the skeptical part of me doesn't believe that they were like pushed into a corner where like the only route for existence is taking the tobacco
1: money. The one thing I would say is that when you work with certain types of industries, that aren't from your world, but you know they're desperate, there's almost this weird effect in terms of the work created, which means that if it's a company from a non-traditional industry or one that just isn't from your world, you can generally underserve them because they have no other options and they're not good enough to really figure it out. So what I mean is that like when PMI comes to vice, PMI doesn't really have a ton of options because- they're looking for cool, and no one really wants to work with them. So you can actually create, yeah. arguably. I mean, it is a reflection of your brand. Don't get me wrong, but like, if you know, if if a brand from the creative world is, like, let's say Red Bull, right? I think they would have a much higher expectation of how far their dollar would go.
0: I mean, wow, that's even like worse of a reason to take it. So what you're saying is like, oh, not only can we make loads of money, but we can also do subpar work. That's like, oh my gosh, I, the entire setup makes me
1: uncomfortable. Less work. But I'm saying this on the basis of it feels as though like that's something yeah. that, that you, you think about because there's certain like taxes and industries, right? You know, it's like if if you have a certain level of expertise, it's not that you're doing substandard work. It's just that, hey, if if this five million pound budget is gonna get me ten episodes with Red Bull, maybe I only do four episodes with PMI. So I think that's something that's from a business perspective, and it's kind of grimy, but it's something that comes up. What was
0: the big draw to you about wanting to discuss this?
1: The big draw is it's just like the the underlying Support of media is obviously extremely challenged, so where you take money at this point in time, it feels as though it 's kind of like a smash and grab it 's like wherever it comes from, like everything is open for discussion i 'd say, and I think that you know if if everything was a little bit rosier let me let me walk that back because it 's not as though cigarette companies haven 't tried to buy media, but I would say that in general we've found that everyone's kind of pushed in the corner. And this is a bit of a tangent, but Apple News Plus is a new upcoming program from Apple that was announced just like earlier this week. And what it is is a bundling program where you can pay 10 bucks a month and you have access to a ton of pretty good publishers like Wall Street Journal, et cetera. Not all of them, not not all the heavy hitters, like New York Times, et cetera. But basically But
0: it's a pretty hefty
1: bundle. Yeah, it's a it's a hefty bundle. But on top of that, the way the bundle works is that yeah. publishers are not getting, you know, anywhere near sort of a fair breakdown. They get I think a fifty-fifty Pro- split.
0: You don't mean fifty-fifty split of each individual subscriber.
1: I think the way they calculate it, and I want to double check, is that basically like if you spend uh, 10 minutes on a site uh, let me see and the way this is calculated is on a metric called dwell time so let's say for ease of calculation there's 100 subscribers paying 10 bucks a month that means there's $1,000 in revenue Apple keeps 500 bucks of that And then that remaining $500 is divided by.
0: Right. So, like, let's say all subscribers spend 20% of their time on the Wall Street Journal, then the Wall Street Journal will get proportionally 20% of the 50%, et cetera. Yeah. So, if you're a small publisher and you're getting like a fraction of attention, then, you know, this converts
1: to very little money. Yeah, and the argument also is that dwell time doesn't really promote quality per se. Well,
0: all of this to illustrate, this entire tangent to illustrate the idea that media entities as a whole are in a bad position, which is why entities like Vice might decide to take quote unquote bad money. I think tobacco is unconscionable and c- I could, could never do that. Yeah. I would never, like, even as a freelancer, like I would never do a graphic for a tobacco company or write spawn con for them. Like, I would rather go, eat, I don't know, like work at the mm-hmm. supermarket if I was in that sort of like push to the brink situation where I needed cash. Uh, it just, that's, I think that's part of why I picked it is because like, I think smoking at least has a lot of clarity. At least in my mind yeah. it does, whereas like like you said, like multi-level marketing, I can't say with as much clarity. It's almost like smoking for me is at the end of the spectrum and then everything else is a gradient. But you don't agree. You don't think so?
1: No, it's not I don't agree. I just think that it's people make decisions based on the information available to them and mm. I think some people in times of desperation, but then, like, okay, ethics but if ethics change changed, in times of desperation, then aren't period. they
0: not ethics?
1: Right? And I think that's the one thing. Shouldn't I, I your think,
0: ethics be the things that st- hold true?
1: I think it's, I think, I don't think ethics are binary, but like, I think I, don't that, know. Can't I think be, it's always that can't be right. A that can't be like right. Slide.
0: So you don't cheat on your wife. You're not gonna wind up in like a desperate situation and then be like, oh, now it's okay to cheat on my wife.
1: Well, I thought that was a fine example, but all right. Well, let's use a better example. What I think is a better example anyways. All right, you have a young family and you've okay. just lost your job Continue. and your baby needs to eat food. Do you know what I mean? I think that's kind of where I'm, I'm going. I don't think this is anywhere near mm. the same argument for vice, but I think that that's what my argument, I mean, that's okay, what I'm trying but to say is some- that- Things can change based on circumstances. You have to, as an individual, so like just, wow, as much I just as, like,
0: you totally strangle the words in my throat. You as an individual slash all people as individuals, we have some kind of ethics that will hold true in all situations. Like you don't kill anyone.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's like universal standards, I think. But there's also like a pyramid, right? There's certain things that you might have to reconsider.
0: Uh, we did not reach anything approaching like a satisfying conclusion on this <laughs>
1: I don't think there is a conclusion because I think that everyone's mileage may vary. And I think that's a bit of a cop-out as an answer, but it's really dependent on what is the sort of like scenario at hand. Because I think different scenarios require different actions, right? I'm, you know, I think that that's, that's the reality of it, but don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is like cool in that sense. But I just think that I'm I can. i I'm trying to zoom out maybe maybe to the point where it's not even helpful for this argument, but like.
0: I mean, I, th- I think about the creators at Vice who have been working on this PMI content. And I, I think that they are in kind of a situation you're describing where they don't have much of a choice. Where I don't, I don't really expect them to walk out on their job because they don't want to work on this. Like the the person I hold responsible is like the people at the top of Vice who make this decision to take this money. Does that make sense? So like as an individual, like such as Kelly, who we referenced, I can understand why she would be backed into that kind of corner. I have greater moral fiber, Eugene. So my subject this week is the overflowing situation of museums. They have too much art. I believe you refer to this as museums needing Marie Kondo.
1: Uh, That was Nathan, I think.
0: Ah, yes. What the situation is, and this is from a New York Times article, which is pretty cool. And I have to admit that they got me to read this by incorporating a quiz into it. I mean, like I would have read it anyway, I think, but the article also includes a quiz where you get to rate art or you get to decide if you rate art the same as the professionals. The main premise is that museums in America have too many things in their collections their collections have grown 10 times in size over the past 50 years. And actually only a fraction of what they own can ever be displayed at any period of time. And partially that's due to space. And partially that's also due to protection of fragile items. So it's not just that they don't have enough space. For example, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York only at any given time has 4% of their collection on view, which is astounding for anyone who's been to the Met. There's like a lot of things on view already. So the article kicks off by introducing the director of the Indianapolis Museum of Art at Newfields, Charles L. Venable, because he said he was planning to build more storage using $14 million, but instead embarked on a system of ranking the museum's 54,000 items with letter grades. So that's like his... Own system, not necessarily something that's been done before with art and museums. And everything that got a D meant that it should be sold or given away. So grades are usually looked down upon. It's kind of like a taboo subject and like getting rid of art in general, which is called deaccessioning in the museum world is also looked down in general or not looked down, but like it's kind of a taboo subject. Not something that people like to talk about. A little bit, it's disrespectful. Part of it is that it's related to donors. So a lot of museums, they rely on their existence through generous benefactors. And often these benefactors, they don't just give money, but they also give art. And it becomes very complicated if you want to give away the art that they donated. Because then you have to communicate with them why that's happening and hope that they still give you money. So that's kind of part of why it's taboo. What I was interested in, so I think it's factually interesting that museums have so much art acquired. For example, the MFA Houston, their collection grew 1,438% over the last 50 years. And the SF MoMA, which might be more familiar for people, grew 1,014% over 50 years. So that's interesting to me that museums like us as humans are also suffering from acquiring too many things but I think the reason I picked this is this idea of what are museums good for as in what is their use and do they serve their purpose well by having work in storage and and how can they be doing better
1: that thing about how they added so much art is crazy because Art generally, if pre- preserved and taken care of, can last a really long time, right? Yeah. There's no degradation, so it's the constant stockpiling of stuff, really. So just as much as you think, oh, there's a lot of photos being created, to a degree, the same thing could be said about physical works of art.
0: Yeah, definitely. But I think
1: I think to your answer, the when I when I think of art, I think there's a high concentration in metropolitan areas, which is a disservice to people that don't have access to it. Yeah. So right now there's no sort of opportunity for you to take and create almost like a pyramid system. And this is the second time I'm referring to it. Um, but if you think about the top being, you know, there's the top of the pyramid being your, the best museums, right? Those are the ones that obviously will continue to be an easy place where they'll generally always have work coming in. But I think that there has to be a changing relationship between donors and these people. Because I think what these people want, and I'm curious too, like as a donor, like is your ultimate goal to donate art in hope someone sees it? Or you just want to yeah. be in the good graces of the MoMA or these other yeah. big museums? But I think that if the MoMA can continue to build a strong brand and maintain that relevancy, they should shift the narrative where it's like, hey, you know what? Our goal is to make art accessible, understood, and consumable or something people all around the world can take in, right? By virtue of you wanting to work with us, we're going to find homes for this. So while this might not be on main display at our top tier gallery, we will find a home for it somewhere in the network.
0: Yeah, I I 100% agree. And that's also where this article concludes is that if you're a museum that's fortunate to have huge collections of art and you you have maybe 50 paintings from the same artist, like that's just not necessary to represent that artist in your one building. So I think what would be interesting to see, like globally would be great, but even just within the state's some kind of network, more of a f- strong relationship between museums and maybe even the fostering of like smaller museums in places that are out of the way. I mean, if so much art exists, then that's I feel like that's possible. Like rather than spending all this money building storage in metropolitan areas for the art, it could go to places that are underserved that don't have museums at all.
1: Yeah, I just yeah, think that the, the challenge now becomes since these super old crusty works of art, crusty is probably not the right word but I'm, I'm what I'm trying to get at is that a lot of this was created at a time before the availability of databases and all that stuff so it's a pretty laborious process to go back and track and grade and and catalog everything which is to its detriment because if you created a system from Um, the ground up today, I think you could definitely create a much more streamlined process where you could both account for- Hmm. I actually think
0: that museums have pretty good archival processes. I don't think that that is the issue. The issue is more of this culture of not getting rid of what you own. And I think that's changing. So it's not a problem of not knowing what you possess. They do have actually really clear pictures of what they possess and in what categories. It's just not really popular to talk about how can we move art? And maybe it's also the problem of like this feeling of, oh, I'm getting rid of this from my collection. Like, I guess what they need to start thinking about is like art as something societally shared.
1: Like a public utility more than anything. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like a public utility as opposed to something a museum possesses. There's this good quote from Glenn D. Lowry, the director of the Museum of Modern Art. He said, it doesn't benefit anyone when there are thousands, if not millions, of works of art that are languishing in storage. There is a huge capital cost that has a drag on operations. But more importantly, we would be far better off allowing others to have those works of art who might enjoy them. So it's really like a win-win situation because like it costs those big museums lots of money to maintain their huge collections that no one sees. And also the public doesn't even get to enjoy it. And by public, I just mean like anyone that's not in the institution. But I think the obstacle that the museum world has to overcome is changing the perception, like you said, like reframing that conversation to not be about like, oh, we're throwing away art, but just like we are moving it for the good of everyone. Ooh, I also wanted I had another quote which is like kind of relevant to the vice conversation, but only because of the way this guy framed the problem. Gary Tintero, director of the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston defended the Shelburne Museum in Vermont's decision to sell $25 million worth of art in 1996. And what he said was, if an institution is faced with an existential threat, isn't it better for the institution to survive with some works of art than no works of art? And it was like that same framing, like when you're pushed to the edge, you have to do you what have you can to, to
1: survive. Snap decisions. Yeah. Story of our lives.
0: Though so this one is less complicated for me morally. But I guess it's yeah. still that like positioning of like you wind up that you said like, you wind up doing things that in other situations you would not have wanted to do.
1: I think overall, like I feel pretty, um, pretty good about that.
0: Yeah, I think no, for I- the regular museum goer, what I would say is, I guess I'm also thinking about this because of conversations we've had about su- supporting sustainability and finding like, local smaller initiatives to support? Like, is there a way you can support your smaller museums that you can go foster, like not the Met basically?
1: So what, this is what I was thinking about. I was thinking about what is the solution to this problem? Okay, call it, um, call the GMN, the Global Museum Network, right? And you're basically taking into account all people that want to be participants within this program. And what you do is like, you start finding a way to catalog and upload a database of what's available in terms of artwork, right? And then it becomes almost like a quasi curation process where, hey, I'm like this small gallery in the middle of Canada, right? The prairies of Canada. And I have access to this global network. And I'm like, hey, you know what? And whether this works or not, but like have access to a particular tier of artwork. So if you're a smaller one, maybe you only have access to like the, the D grade, but that's not necessarily in a, in a negative way, but it's like, this is it's, generally it's probably what you are access more, to. It's
0: probably not due to the fact that thinking about your solution, it wouldn't be due to the fact that they're small, but more like whether your building is appropriate for housing those works, because that would be a concern. Yeah. Because you would be then like the- Caretaker. And if you don't have the means, then it's difficult to be like, okay, we're gonna give you this. Anyway, keep going.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So and then from there you would just kind of figure out the logistics of it. I don't know if having artwork in your possession and lending it out is a transactional cost. Like do people rent it out? I don't know. It would at least be
0: a logistics cost. Like someone, even if the MoMA was going to lend, you know, 10 artworks to the small museum. The small gallery in the middle of Canada, they might be willing to loan it for free, but who is going to pay for the packaging and the flight and etc. Like that's that would be yeah. the cost, I think. Yeah. But solvable. And I think that is hopefully the direction things would go in. let's address some housekeeping things. Housekeeping, we mean reader questions. We got a question from at Brian Chow on Instagram who asked, what is cool or what determines cool? You want to tackle that?
1: You know what's interesting is that like <laughs> I think cool is like such a, a challenging thing because I think cool is so, it's so situationally based and it's also dependent on Tribes, right? So yeah. w- there's certain things that s- soccer moms find really interesting and fascinating. and There's things that kids don't find interesting and fascinating, but I think exactly. what ultimately, I think what, what's cool, what drives cool, I think there has to be an underlying uh, unifying thread and understanding around it. So what it means is that like, you can't just walk into some sort of event uh, with some shit no one's ever seen before or it's just like just so outlandish that it's so far flung from what is the acceptable norm, and sometimes that is very challenging to be considered mm-hmm. cool. But I think that it also is like back to the situational context. It's like if your network is all about people that are trying to push the boundaries in ways that are crazy. I think a good example is RuPaul's um, Drag Race. Yes. Yeah. So you look at it like I think that that the, the assumption around that is like, it's super outlandish. It's very performative. And that is the sort of the, the unifying thread there.
0: Wait, why did, why did you use RuPaul's Drag Race as well, an if example? Well,
1: if you look at RuPaul, I think that you're really trying to push the boundaries of what is unexpected. Right. And I think okay. by virtue of that, there's like still an element that needs to be maintained. It's like, I'm making this up. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm sure it changes dependent on each challenge, but like, Is it sexy? Is it feminine? Is it like engaging, entertaining, or whatever, right? So I think that once you establish the core values of a certain group, then it becomes a little bit easier to figure out is this something that's considered cool?
0: Hmm. Hmm, 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 hmm. Okay, so I actually do watch RuPaul's Drag Race, which is why I found it funny that you. I do um, too.
1: By periphery, because it's always on in the background.
0: I see. I see. But I do totally subscribe by the thing you say about tribes, and I think it's like you just proved it by your attempt to explain RuPaul's Drag Race because it's like people who are there's different layers, like people who are actually on that show and in that world will think one thing is cool versus another. And then we as an audience, like people who regular watch it, have like another idea of what's cool and what's not. Thinking about that world, that our perception of the world or perception of other viewers. And then you on a other outside layer have like a slightly different idea as well.
1: My my definition of cool has definitely changed because I think in the past, it was predicated on superficial characteristics. like, is this guy wearing the right brands? Is he, does this stuff fit, et cetera? Now it's like less of an interest and a talking point. It's more like cool is the ability to have an independent thought and articulate it, right? Like I think that's an example of how things shift and change because who you're defined by and who you and who you surround yourself with has has changed.
0: Yeah. I guess I was gonna say what is interesting to me is whether something can be objectively cool. Or not, and I don't think so because it is definitely much. It is definitely what you project onto it. So a five-year-old is going to think. I think
1: retrospectively, it can be.
0: I know, but like retrospectively, something can be objectively
1: cool. I would say I think there's a higher degree. Let's put it that way. You can't be like a hundred with a hundred percent certainty.
0: I guess if we try to make a synonym, and you think of cool as groundbreaking or innovative culturally important then yes retrospectively you can look back and say the grunge movement was cool but i don't think you have that clarity in the moment and like you were saying as a person like your own individual perspective always changes to finish my analogy like a five-year-old is going to find almost anything cool and then as you age like that changes I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com.
1: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend.
0: Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at macon.com, C H A R I S or eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. The easiest way, however, is to DM us at Macon, M-A-E-K-A-N. We love hearing from you.
1: I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.